You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 185 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This episode is going to feature the recording of my conversation with Brett Vinat of the School Sucks Project on the very last day of the 2019 Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. You'll hear us in the beginning talking a little bit about the setting Lots of people already left, many others on the way out, you know, people packing up, cleaning up, that sort of thing. And both of us would be leaving within just, you know, a few hours at most of when we had this conversation. And we sat down at the pavilion where the presentations had been happening all weekend, which was now, you know, dark and quiet and kind of a ghost town. It was like a shopping center after the big grocery store packs up and leaves, you know, the Hallmark store and whatnot, they can't stand on their own, you know. So there we were, and we had a really interesting conversation recorded for a crossover episode again of both of our shows. So you may have already caught this if you subscribe and listen to Brett's show. It's the same conversation as School Sucks Project, I believe, episode 620. So if you've already listened to it there, no reason to listen to it here unless you just really enjoyed it and want to listen to it again. And if that's the case, hey, by all means. But it was a really interesting conversation, very freewheeling. I think we were both kind of simultaneously exhausted and yet wired by the four-day weekend camping at the Circle Pine Center and interacting all weekend long with all sorts of interesting people talking about all sorts of interesting things. So the conversation goes all over the place. We talk a bit about my presentation on Harry Anslinger, which you probably have already listened to. It's the DHP episode right before this one. But we dig into a variety of interesting subjects, including a deep dive on the whole concept of conspiracy theories and how critical thinking should relate to those sorts of things and about the evolution of institutions and what this can mean. We both kind of agreed that this was almost like a Joe Rogan experience sort of a conversation, just in the sense that it was sort of all over the place. But I enjoyed talking to Brett, as I always do, both off the record over the course of the weekend and then, of course, this recorded conversation. And I look forward to collaborating with him again in the future whenever possible. And you'll hear us talk a bit about his university and the presentation I did as part of that. But anyway, without further ado, here is my conversation with Brett Vinat from the very last day of the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest of 2019. 
are. It is the bitter end, and we are the bitter clingers. It's the, I don't even know if this is considered the last day of the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, but yeah, it is kind of somber. We're sitting here in the pavilion, which is where all the events are. We're the only two people in a room that could hold probably 200 people. The pews are empty. The pews are Literally empty. Literally the pews. Yeah, yeah. There are like church pews in here where people sit. I think I ran this by you, but when we do joint productions of our shows like this, we mm-hmm. need to call it the limited hangout. Yes. Because I learned that term from you the first night I got here, and I thought it was very... I mean, it obviously feeds into lots of uh, beliefs and suspicions I already have, but can you explain? I'm sure you've talked about it on your show, Mm. but to to the people in my audience, what the limited hangout is? Right, yeah. The limited hangout is what happens when, say, a government agency or something like that, um, that's usually who we think about it with, where, where, say, some really nasty dirt scandal horrible thing, whatever it is, you know, CIA torturing people or experimenting on people, whatever it is. When that stuff is in about to be brought to light somehow to the public or in danger of becoming brought to the public, and the agency itself kind of jumps out in front of it mm-hmm. and deliberately exposes a little tip of the iceberg. Yeah. But makes sure that most of the iceberg, particularly the nastiest parts of it, stay uh, concealed. And the public is satiated by the tip of the iceberg. Right, so right, right. Yeah. And this this allows the agency itself to then make the the claim that it's a couple of bad apples yep. with a straight face. Yeah, absolutely. And that there's nothing fundamentally corrupt or dangerous or whatever about, you know, most likely it would be someone like the CIA or FBI or one of those. Do you have a favorite example of a historic limited hangout? I think some of the coverage of true conspiracies like conspiracies that are not really that much theory in hollywood are examples of limited hangouts so for example like the tom cruise movie american made yeah about barry seal there appears to be at least some degree of uh, cia involvement in that film yeah which might surprise someone because the film the film doesn't show the cia in a very positive light in a lot of ways but um one thing is the CIA is kind of sophisticated in how they influence the media, their portrayal in the media. The CIA is actually okay with themselves being depicted as as kind of bad guys as long as it's done in such a way that like it makes them seem more intimidating, you know, so that viewers will watch it and go, oh, the CIA can do whatever they want. Oh, I'm scared. But also uh, – Like on a subtle level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, you know, there's there's multiple levels where like a naive person would watch a movie that – shows the CIA as kind of bad guys and go, well, you know, the the CIA is, is doing some nasty things, but they're doing it to protect my freedom. They're doing it to keep me safe from various boogeymen who want to hurt me. Um, but then a more sophisticated person would watch it and maybe be like, wow, the CIA are really bad dudes, but then would also go, and I don't want to fuck with them. Right. So Shane Radliff and I were talking about like his journey into this world yesterday. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, he was talking about being influenced by Bill Cooper. And that obviously it's hard to talk about Bill Cooper without talking about Alex Jones. And then we started talking about like the psychological function of conspiracy theories themselves where, yeah, maybe it satisfies some quest or desire or need for entertainment and feelings right. of, of wokeness. Like, like I, I, everybody is certainly now in this century understands that the world is, is a terribly difficult place 
to make meaning, right? There's so much complexity. I think we see the the infinite complexity of like social and political and historical things that people eventually have to resign themselves to never understanding them fully. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, they're, so they're, they're on this quest. There could be a variety of motivations for being on that quest. But there's this subtlety in conspiracy theories. Like I think we use 9-11 as an example where it's like, okay, the government did this, got the entire media to lie about it, and got away with it, right? So, what what is the on on that that subtle level? What is the takeaway that the the pursuer of truth gets from that? Right? It's it's exactly right. what you're saying about the CIA. So, it, it almost seems that conspiracy theories, and I'm not saying that they're designed to do this, but they do have, um, a, at the very least, an accidental psyop going on inside them. Most of them, you know. Right. Yeah. To the people who are a little more paranoid, maybe a little more sophisticated, a little bit more willing to question the official narrative on things, there's that, there's that little in- intimidation. And if you want, um, another, another like real historical example of what I would consider a limited hangout, um, the, the Rockefeller committee or commission or whatever it was called in the mid seventies, it looked into some of the abuses of the CIA and all that. The church committee? There were, there were two separate ones. Uh-huh. Um, the, the church committee, I think, was being a little bit more – like I, I think I think Frank Church was actually an honest guy who was really trying to get at the truth. Mm-hmm. And, and the way that the establishment kind of tried to get him unelected after the church committee I think is, is evidence that he was an honest actor. But there was another one that I think was called the Rockefeller Commission or something like this. This I guess would have been when um, Nelson Rockefeller was vice president under Gerald Ford if my memory is not totally fried on this. Yep. And they, more so than the church committee, the church committee, I think, kind of did the most it could with the documents it could get its hands on, that kind of thing. But the Rockefeller Commission, I think, was – and I've not dug into this super deeply in my research, so these are just my impressions. But I think they were trying to throw a couple of bad things under the bus uh, that the CIA did, expose them and go, oh, good, look, we've we've exposed the, the few bad apples and let's do some, you know, bullshit little reforms and things like this so this mm-hmm. doesn't happen again kind of thing. Right, right. So, yeah, that'd be another limited hangout. Uh, M- MKUltra was another example of this, which was run as its own operation for, for many, many years. You actually, right. oh, we're going to get into what you presented on here in a minute, yeah. which is an interesting subject. But you actually, you talked about this in your speech, how, you know, they had Operation Midnight Climax, right? right? Where they're, uh, they've got these um, drug houses, or they I guess they're, they're not exactly whorehouses, but they're places where prostitutes are bringing John's to do drugs and then their behavior is being observed. Mm-hmm. Um, recorded. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's LSD. I mean, so there, there, mm-hmm. it, it's a lot of like the que- answering the question of what does LSD do to people? How useful is LSD on a mass scale against right. an enemy like, say, the Russians, which provides a terribly useful foil for doing all kinds of things to your own population. Sure. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and then, of course, at that same time, like right before church, there was the House Committee on Assassinations. Have you studied right. that much? Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 aware of the basics of it. That's not something I've ever really dug into deeply, so I don't have a super educated opinion on on how much that was a limited hangout or how much that was just Congress being their usual not super competent selves, you know. But even they did did reach some kind of uh, revisionist conclusions, right? I mean, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. They uh, there was revision on Martin Luther King. And I think maybe the Kennedy brothers might have been more inconclusive, but the hangout was more limited than it could have been because like a handful of people 
uh, were executed, um, either with uh, mafia or CIA associations at the, I think, right around the time and during the time uh, that the the committee hearings were actually taking place. So there's that. Yeah. Limited hangout, of course, has a double meaning as we sit here basically by ourselves. I guess so. (laughs) Yeah. Our voices echo through this giant empty place. But I'm glad that we, before I had to take off and drive back to Pittsburgh, we had a chance to sit down and talk. And I did want to ask you about this. Was was this your second time at this event? Uh, This was my third. Oh, nice. I was here for the first time in 2016. And then they invited me again in 2017. But I, I had something else going on at the same time. So I had to miss and then, yeah, I was here last year, obviously, met you uh, last year, and then was here this year, obviously. Right. So what do, you, what, do you, what do you think of this event as far as, like, you come here from, you know, a world where ideas are supposedly exchanged, right? Allegedly. To, <laughs> to another one. Um, what are your impressions of this event, and what do you usually get out of coming here? Well, it's, it's a lot of fun, and, and I don't, um, you know, I haven't been to too many different other kind of liberty-oriented events. So, you know, I wouldn't say I have the greatest basis of comparison or whatever, but of the things that I've been to, it's probably my favorite. Yeah. There's definitely, you know, I know you've you've got more extensive uh, grounds of comparison, but I think we've we've both kind of said that there's something about this event that's just a, it's a very laid-back, friendly sort of an atmosphere. Mm-hmm. At any given time, because there's not, it's not as as tightly packed as a thing like Porkfest, you know, jammed jammed with people in a small area. There's kind of more space, and and you know, there's more opportunity to take a break from the people when you want to, um, and then to kind of you know, float around to different subgroups and different areas mm-hmm. where different people are camping, and to kind of hang out with some people over here, and then hang out with some people over there. Yeah, you are like I am a break taker from people at events. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and we actually had cabins right next to each other, so we were often passing uh, on our, our break times, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I think that's really important if you're more introverted to to take time and recharge uh, and be. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely uh, like to be present with people while I'm here because obviously it's uh, you know it's a very limited uh, chance to hang out and interact and and make connections with people. So I don't want to ever feel like uh, frazzled or worn down. Or, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because if you're an introvert, then even when you're with people that you like and you enjoy being with, it it drains your energy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's, that's the best definition I've ever heard is, is that an introvert is someone who gains energy from being alone and, and drain, is, is drained of energy when they're around people. Uh, and an extrovert is the opposite way. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, but it seems like the people here, like they're cool with it. They don't, they don't seem to think like, you know, when I, when I wander off by myself for a while or whatever, no, nobody, nobody's getting offended. Uh, nobody's, you know, Hey, why are, why aren't you hanging out with us? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. brought your ass all the way here from Florida. Like, what, what are you going over there for? Nah, every, everybody's just very kind of like cool with whatever anyone wants to do. Yeah, it's it, it is. Uh, you know, I, I, I said, I really like the community aspect of this, how everybody comes together and, in one circle, um, right. or almost everybody does. Uh, I think that's that's really important. It's a feature that's missing from from larger events, just because you know it's not that they're defective in any way. They're just larger. Yeah, exactly, more, exactly. It's just you, yeah. you know, too too many people uh, jam together in close confines, and and it's just yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of of all those ideas. Like, what's that book? Um, Human scale. Um, oh, I don't know about this. It's it's a very interesting book it's by a super interesting dude named Kirkpatrick Sale. 
who's one of these kind of maverick old school 60s left wingers, but who's like almost kind of anarchistic and libertarian ish in some ways, very much a decentralist. Um, and in human scale, it's all about how human societies start to have all these problems just just because of, of human societies getting too large mm. and that there are kind of, you know, ideal ranges for things like towns or communities or whatever um, that, that, you know, maybe, maybe you've heard of like Dunbar's number. Is it like, 150? I forget what the number even is, to be honest with you, but just the idea. Is this that, talked about in the tipping point? That, I think it is talked about in the tipping point. Uh, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a while since since I read that one. Yeah, but like that you can only really really keep track of a certain number of people in your head of like associations and friendships and all that sort of stuff. Uh, yes, and this is from like nomadic tribal kind of roots. Yeah, yes. Yeah. It's just sort of, you know, kind of in our operating system. And yeah, you, you just, you know, when there's when there's too many people in, in one place, there's too much complexity. It creates problems, even if all the people are great and, uh, you know, mean well. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is this is why I moved out of South Florida as soon as I was able to. Because mm. it's it's just uh, I don't even know. I don't know. It's just jammed with people. Yeah, I mean, there's that, and, and then I think everybody we talk about, and <laughs> to the point of like absolutely beating a cliche to death at this point. How many people we know about? in the world, not just from what like you and I do, right? Mm -hmm. And all the people we interact with that way, but all the people being part of this like uh, larger community and, and being part of the, the online world, I really um, wonder what the strain is on our, our biology for doing this a lot of the times. And, and I, I think it's, it's too early to know, but I think we're going to find out in the years to come. Yeah. It's definitely got to be a, a new, unique thing in the human experience. So there's no way we can we can like evolutionarily adapt to it. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean well that's actually the question. Does it force some kind of adaptation? Talk about what you came here to pre well, you didn't come here to present on this, but in coming here, you did a presentation in front of a, a pretty large group. There were people in the pews that day. The pews were yeah, the pews were filled. Yeah, I decided to do one of my DHP villains spotlights mm -hmm. um i periodically will do a dhp hero or dhp villain spotlight on a historical figure um and you know obviously the hero is someone uh, would be someone who i think is mostly more good than bad and had some sort of positive impact on history in some way and the villain would be the opposite and i always try to say i didn't in this presentation because of time but that i don't actually for the most part view people that simplistically as all good or all bad although some bad people in particular it's hard to really find any upside in them, mm -hmm. but that I, I mean it a little bit, a little bit tongue in cheek, and I'm, I'm certainly not in favor of things like hero worship and, and all that kind of stuff or deifying historical figures, even the ones I like. But 
still, when, when I'm doing that, I try to find the ones that aren't obvious, that aren't like super famous, you know? So like, it'd be really easy for me to just do DHP villains and just be like, all right, Stalin, Mao, Hitler, Pol Pot, and just like, you know, the low hanging fruit of the greatest mass murderers of all time. Right. But I like to find, find ones that are not as well known and not as obvious. So like, for example, an early one I did was on, um, Edward Mandel house. Yes. But, yes, uh, yes. The, the one that I was covering at this event and I, I'll tip the hat to our, our mutual friend and benefactor here, uh, Joe Motard mm-hmm. that he, uh, when I was talking to him on the phone, uh, however many weeks back it was about, you know, what I might present on. And I kind of wanted to do like an actual, like really in-depth history thing, almost like what I would do, you know, from home in a normal podcast episode, but to sort of do it live. And I asked him like, is there anything going on that maybe I could tie into? And basically what he, what he said was, well, Michigan pretty recently legalized the reefer. Mm-hmm. Do you think there, there'd be a topic that would tie into that in some way that we could do. And I can't remember honestly, if it was, if it was him or me who, who threw out there, Oh, what about something about Harry Anslinger? You know, and that presentation, that was a challenge for me because I was trying to shoehorn it into about an hour. And that's that type of thing, like covering the career of someone like Harry Anslinger. That's something that in, in a normal podcast episode, not recorded live in an event, I'd probably, I probably would have, would have stretched that thing out to two or three hours. Right. But I had to, I had to whittle it down to just like the most interesting and important and amusing stuff. Um, so, you know, this ties into something maybe uh, that we'll talk about later with the whole um, university module on research skills, which yep. I did one for, that this was an actual real-life case study of me using the various uh, techniques and methods and hacks and whatever that I talk about in that Yeah, to do this because up until – month ago or whenever it was that I, that I picked my topic, I only knew the basics of Harry Anslinger. Right. And so so I I had to dive deep quick. I would think that a lot of people in my audience would only know the basics too, that he was maybe a prohibitionist first, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a little muddled how much he really believed in alcohol prohibition versus how much it was just like, well, it's the law, so we should enforce it the best we can kind of thing. Right. Um, I don't, I don't really know one way or the other. I don't know if there's any quotes of him out there in the 1920s saying like, oh, alcohol is the worst thing ever. We have to keep it, um, illegal. But yeah, he definitely, you know, did some work on that in the twenties for sure. Right. And then moved on into, uh, the drug war, right. Was one of the, the un, for, for most people, obviously an unknown figure in the perpetuation and acceleration of the war on drugs before, a war on drugs, like what I think a lot of us have noticed about the Patriot Act and the NSA, the wiring and the pipes for a fully functioning police state, the groundwork, the infrastructure sure. has been laid for that for a long time. And a lot of it accelerated um, with 9-11 and the war on terror. And at right. this point, it's gotten to uh, a stage, I think, where it only takes um, a certain kind of terror, terrifying event like 9-11 was, where who's ever in power just has to flip the switch and turn it on, uh, you know, fully and continuously. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the, the scare around terrorism died down uh, in the last uh, 20 years. But if something like that happens again, and there is that kind of uh, crackdown, even though at this point, you could argue that um, maybe what seemed like a crackdown at first is not 
at a hundred percent intensity at, at what it was in 2001, 2002, 2003, uh, but has leveled off and become very normalized, right? So we don't mm-hmm. even, most people don't even notice anymore. People are, people who are, you know, reaching teenagers and maybe even some level of social or political awareness were born into this, right? Right. right. They never knew any other world. You know, I was talking again in that conversation I had with Shane, he was eight or nine when that happened. Yeah. You know? The drug war infrastructure was laid right quietly long before i mean i think most people associate the kickoff of the drug war with the nixon administration right um anslinger was living out the last years of his life as richard nixon was getting elected in 1968 he was near death at that point he died in 1975 right Mm -hmm. okay so let's just talk about the process of, of, of putting that together a little bit and any interesting revelations that you had along the way. So you choose like when you when you decide like this is a relatable topic, a historical topic to a current Michigan issue um, and you start pursuing it. Were you surprised with just your, your base level knowledge on Anslinger going into this with things that you found? I mean, at this point, maybe you're not surprised by these horrible freedom smashing things you discover about people. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm probably desensitized to it at this point. Um, with Anslinger, I guess it was just that it was sort of everything, everything I kind of knew or guessed about him and, and what he did in his legacy only like it's, it's worse than I thought kind of thing. Right. So that, that's like the only thing where my expectations were, uh, subverted in any way, which often happens when I look into a historical topic where, the only thing I really learn, I mean, I learn all kinds of like specific facts and, and quotes and stories and whatever, but the, the big takeaway so much of the time is like, oh yeah, it's, it's as bad as I thought, but worse. <laughs> right, right. And, and with Anslinger, I mean, I didn't realize how long he, he was at the Narcotics Bureau. You know, I kind of knew like, oh yeah, he was, he was definitely around in the thirties. I kind of knew he was one of the main guys behind the feds beginning to criminalize marijuana, um, in the thirties. And, but but really quickly, I started to find these links between him and, and kind of the clandestine intelligence world. And I knew a little bit of this from, from reading books like The Politics of Heroin by Alfred McCoy. Hmm. Um, he briefly – he doesn't get into Anslinger very much in, in that book, but he does briefly mention Anslinger and, and that he had some intelligence ties and all this sort of thing. And so – and I, and I had kind of known that there were some Narcotics Bureau agents – who were involved in in things like some of the MK Ultra experiments, but I didn't I didn't quite know the full extent of it and the details. And so when I started to delve into that, that's 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 where probably there were the most details that didn't necessarily surprise me, but but were you know there was more to it than I thought, and there's probably more to it even than what I came up with. Um, if I had six months to research Anslinger's career, I probably could dig up all kinds of horrible shit. Yeah. In addition to what I what I covered the other day. So what we're kind of talking about here is a management of narcotics in America tie into intelligence that was right. mildly surprising. Even though we we know that this is, I I, I see I kind of discovered we're talking about American made earlier and as the as the limited hangout and even at the beginning of american made it says i think there's like a line on the screen like a text line on the screen or maybe it's in the trailer it says some of this shit actually happened right right which only adds to the confusion right but i feel like for for people who are somewhat awakened to this 
connection between narcotics and American intelligence agencies. They come at it from the other direction historically, like from from uh, the 1980s, the CIA running uh, cocaine or crack into Los Angeles. And then, of right. course, uh, one of our favorite stories, Mina, Arkansas, where I made sure right. I made sure to stop there and find that airstrip. Nice. Um, yeah, I've got pictures of it. Yeah. Nice. I mean, I've got it, like we have picked, it was night and it was a little scary, but Nick Ulbrich and I who was traveling across the country. Stay with away me. from the train tracks out there. Yeah, that's what very they dangerous. say. Don't smoke the reefer when you're near the train tracks. It had like that real kind of eerie feel to it where we pull up into the, the air base and you see those planes, like the ones that Tom Cruise is flying in the movie as Barry yeah. Seal. I don't think we had seen the movie yet. So when I saw the movie, I was like, holy shit, Th these planes are inactive. There's just, there's like a boneyard. Of them like at the, the airport, C threes or whatever those those no, they're cargo planes. No, they're small. They're small. Oh, okay. they're, like the the plane that I, I know he had a few huge ones that he got eventually. Right. So like, this is like the early days um, where it's maybe like a uh, it's maybe like a four passenger plane. Right. So oh, there we go. We're being joined by somebody in a club car. Yeah. <laughs> playing music, which I like. It's a feature right. I like. Yeah, yeah. You get some neat background sounds. It makes it authentic for the listener. Right. They feel like they're here. Yeah. That's a club car going by. <laughs> so to come at it though in, in I, I remember i got deep into the barry seal thing because i was prepping to do a show with uh rich and kevin for uh, a bonus show the deep end that we do on the clintons right so you have that that arkansas connection that way but this is and then i guess if you know a little bit about mk ultra you you see that there's an overlap in using drugs to see how it can control or modify behavior right um but that there was this tenacious effort from inside the the drug warriors themselves. Um, well, I mean, actually, no, I shouldn't say. How did he get involved? How how did you see him getting involved with U.S. intelligence, Anslinger? Um, Anslinger kind of dipped his toe in the intelligence world at the end of World War One and, and into the kind of the early to mid nineteen twenties because Anslinger, one of the earliest things he did for the federal government was he actually worked in the State Department, mm. and at the State Department. They had him doing some kind of intelligence type things because back in the 19-teens and 20s, there's no OSS, there's no CIA. And so intelligence is kind of – and still is to some extent today, but but there, there weren't these other like intelligence agencies. So intelligence was kind of dispersed in different parts of the government. So army intelligence had already been around for a while. ONI, Office of Naval Intelligence, which you know my listeners know I I, I think is – Hugely important to American history, Office of Naval Intelligence. Um, they've been around since, if I remember, right, the 1880s. And, and the State Department, I don't think, had like a designated intelligence bureau or anything like that. But there, you know, there'd be various State Department flunkies and things who would kind of do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like that's, that's where Anslinger got into that stuff. And I think around that time, he struck up a friendship with uh, Wild Bill Donovan. This is, you know, I don't even know if he had the nickname Wild Bill yet. I don't know when that officially happened. But this is, you know, we're talking probably like 20 years before the founding of the OSS. Uh, so is and, that the Office of Naval Intelligence? Uh, OSS is Office of Naval no, no, Services. No, no, the Bill Donovan. Is he connected to the oh, Office of Naval Intelligence? I don't, I don't recall. Because you know he's also sort of the point man in bringing the uh, the British spies. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, and and it was the, you know, William Stevenson and all those guys who, like, basically were the consultants that Donovan brought in when he was organizing the OSS. 
Right, right. And then, so this is where we get the whole Ian Fleming connection. Yeah. Old doll. Yeah. yeah Interesting. Yeah. And, and I don't know, this is another one of those things that with more time and resources, maybe I could have dug up more. I don't know the extent of the contact or friendship between Donovan and Anslinger. I just know that it existed and, you know, that they were at the very least like writing letters back and forth in the early 20s. And at the time, I think Donovan was just like, you know, a lawyer. Um, but mm. he's, but Donovan, he's not a guy I've looked into as much as I would like to. So I don't know all the details of his career arc. So like, you know, even though he was a lawyer, what had he been doing before that? And then also, you know, I'm guessing he was probably a lawyer in the same way the Dulles brothers were lawyers for a while. Mm-hmm. Where they're working yeah. at Sullivan yeah. and Cromwell and they're basically just, you know, the right hand guy of the big global corporations that are the ones who are going to go around using the CIA as their, as their, their flunkies to overthrow governments here and there. Uh, yeah, or it, at least they're like the first uh, feet on the ground right. in a place where they want to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't really know. Don, Donovan's definitely a guy. You know, maybe people listening are already experts on him, but Don, Donovan is a very interesting guy. Um, one, one little fact that I happen to know about him, just because I know all kinds of stuff about Florida history, is that um, when Walt Disney was looking to buy up a ton of land around Orlando to mm. build Disney World, yeah. He, it was a top secret project. Disney didn't want anyone knowing it was him and what was going on because then all of a sudden those land prices would go through the roof. Right. So Disney had this whole like cloak and dagger thing where he's setting up dummy corporations to go around and like buy up pieces because this is like, you know, cattle ranches and uh, citrus farms. Hardly anybody lived around Orlando before Disney World. Right, right. And so he wanted to buy up huge amounts of land, but buy it up at the price it was back then, which was super cheap. So he sets up all these dummy corporations. And one of the people who who was working for Disney to make all these secret land buys was Wild Bill Donovan, wow. who, by, who by that point was, you know, back in, in as practicing as a lawyer or whatever again. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Wild Bill Donovan used his cloak and dagger skills to help keep Disney World a secret, you know, the, the land purchases – so oh. that so that Disney could, you know, get it at fire sale prices. I won't even wander into my suspicions about the the interconnectedness <laughs> here. No, I mean if you think about Disney World, right, and what it even, um, how it uh, functions as a kind of social experiment in many ways. Mm. We'll leave that there. We, yeah, I mean there, there's a, there's enough out there even in like mainstream biography coverage of Disney's life and career. Sure, he's he's plugged into a lot of these guys. I mean he was sort of a. A hard right winger, anti-communist sort of a character. Uh, oh yeah, and I mean, even even if you look at Disney being used during World War II, right? Yep. Donald Duck. Yeah. Yeah. Don- Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. So there is that. So let me ask you this: We got to the wonderful world of Disney from Bill Donovan, right? Mm-hmm. Operating in this clandestine fashion to buy up uh, land for Walt Disney. Um, but back to those those early agencies and and we can we can broaden this to not just early intelligence like the office of naval intelligence the oss even the early days of the the cia which grows out of the oss but also even these early organizations or agencies that are fighting against drugs and alcohol in the united states mm-hmm. do you think just from from your research in for for this presentation and you know your research more generally that back then these kinds of organizations were just more corruptible because in the beginning, like everything was done very secretly mm-hmm. and very sort of piecemeal and very much sort of out of necessity, mm-hmm. right? So it seems like the people within them who are such an interesting cast of characters, you know, who, who I mean, who is the guy just to jump ahead to the 60s and talk about MKUltra and Operation Midnight Climax? Who's the guy running that? 
Uh, well, yeah, George White. George. Okay, that is a fascinating character. I, I think it would make a great movie. Yeah, his his life. Yeah, because he was one of. I mean, he's a super eccentric lone wolf narcotics agent. Who I mean, he's almost like an '80s action movie cliche in a way. He's a he's a big crazy guy who's always like, "I work alone," mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't follow the book, and yeah. you know, and for that reason, he kind of butts heads with Anslinger, who's his boss. And yet, it's just like one of those '80s cop movies where Anslinger gets annoyed sometimes that White does everything his own way and and breaks the rules, but at the same time, he can't he can't fire him and and has to keep giving him important cases because the guy gets stuff done. He's a you know he he gets results. It seems like it was a time, just considering some of the dangers in the world and, you know, also a lot of the, the fear-mongering around even drugs like marijuana and who was using them and what it meant for the future of the country. You know, think about just the the uh, paranoia around something like reefer madness, right? right. The, these All these agencies were more oriented to, like, let's get the people who can get the job done. Mm -hmm. And today – they're far more – I'm not saying they're – this is not an argument that these agencies are free of corruption and, you know, right. all the malfunctions have been sorted out. But maybe it was more like the Wild West back then before oh, yeah. there was so much bureaucracy, before there was so much procedure, and before things had been to a certain extent, even if they were limited hangouts, brought above board yes. with like the church committee. So this was like – you know, I, I, it's kind of the spirit of James Bond, too, ironically, who was, uh, you know, Ian Fleming, the author of James Bond, was tied in with Stevenson. And, right. you know, a lot of uh, his writing, there's lots of really plausible theories around his writing being used to build this this idea of connection between the United States and Great Britain and that, that kind of a greater good right. um, as a project. So – but there was more a spirit of James Bond in the early days, and James, yeah. James Bond is always irritating his superiors with his rogue style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and Fleming, I think, pretty deliberately made James Bond as a character in a lot of ways an American. At yeah. least like an American stereotype because he's basically – he's a cowboy. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's, you know, he's this, this uh, educated Scottish dude who, who likes fancy drinks and whatever, but like he's very much a cowboy and I think – I think it's in one of the early James Bond books because I've I've read several of them where um, he Bond I guess first what's the CIA guy in the Bond books is it Felix Leiter Felix Leiter yep I think he's the character is is uh, said to be from Texas mm -hmm. and then there's something where it's said like all the best Americans Bond had met were always from Texas. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then you see James Bond behaving like a like a cowboy cop in yeah, a lot exactly. of ways. You know, he's like he's like the Clint Eastwood of of the intelligence world. Yeah. Um I mean, you know, license to kill and all that kind of shit. And uh yeah, his his boss is always uh, you know, annoyed at him for not following procedure. So yeah, I I think that might have been, you know, uh, at the very least it's Fleming being very savvy about about knowing how to make his books very um you know palatable to an american audience to make his his main character that sort of cowboy type and you know george white real life that kind of that kind of cowboy character mm -hmm. and i think these institutions i think you're right that these institutions not that it really has any bearing on on how morally horrible they are but that, yeah, in their early days, it's much more ad hoc. It's much more informal. It's often much more of like a good old boys network. You know, if you look at like the OSS and the early CIA, it's like all these dudes who went to went to like one of four four elite universities and 
probably were in at least one of the, you know, secret fraternities at one of those universities. And yeah. Like they're all each other's, you know, cousins and, you know, there's, there's very much this kind of old boys network. And then over time, as these things become larger and more bureaucratic and more top heavy and they have more kind of like, you know, not that it's ever remotely enough of the horrible things they're doing, but they get more oversight of a type mm-hmm. It puts limits. I mean, I've, I've seen it even in like the world of education where if you look back the same sort of institutionalization, like, like, I don't know, rigidification, something like that. Yeah. My stepfather was a, was a school teacher and he, he tells me the funniest stories about how when he started teaching, um, in, I don't know, the early seventies or something like that, they, they could just like, they had so much ability that the teachers and administrators and coaches and whatever at the school he was at, they could just routinely do shit that would get you fired and possibly prosecuted today. I had a teacher in fourth grade who is ironically is still teaching and just really like my nephew just had him for a teacher last year, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. constantly thumbs his nose at like the limitations that have been. I mean, even then it felt like that because my dad was the chairman of the school board. So mm-hmm. this was like the I don't know, 1986, maybe 1987. And um, you know, my dad was like, give this guy more money. He's the best teacher. This is like what every teacher should be like. But right. he was going completely against the grain of what everybody else was doing, which was like the safest, most controlled, most regimented kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there are, you know, Maybe a handful of survivors even today who who are getting away with this, but I mean, I contrast that to my experience fifteen years ago going through a, a graduate program with people who are already teaching, and it's basically like we come into school and they put handcuffs on us, you know? Right, and there's like official forms to fill out to do anything, and yeah, you know, if if you don't follow the letter of procedure, like you you might end up in really deep shit. I mean, oh, teachers have told me like, it's almost not worth it. It's yeah. almost not worth doing some of this stuff because the, the, the red tape in your way. Is, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, stories like back in the, back in the early seventies, students, at least where my stepfather was working, students would uh, frequently give their teacher, like at the end of the semester, end of the school year or whatever, give their teacher a gift of a bottle of liquor. Mm-hmm. Mm. At, this is at a high school. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if students were giving teachers gifts of liquor in high school in a high school today? Like, what a scandal it would be! It's like, zero tolerance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, I don't know. It, it, I, I do. I mean, not that I not that I think it's a good idea having the Federal Narcotics Bureau and the CIA running around like cowboys. But at the same time, there is something kind of endearing about the, an institution before it becomes you know, rigid and, and fossilized and whatever that there's, there's a flexibility. You know, you know, one of the things they did, they actually invented an imaginary student who didn't exist mm-hmm. and they made like a file on him. Cause this is back in, you know, pre-computer days. Yeah. Yeah. They actually went and like made phony forms of all the files and records and whatever to have an actual student. And then they had, um, they had, I guess a student who they, they knew, uh, who was kind of cool, who was in on the joke with them, would go on the announcements on the PA in the morning and uh, would would uh, say, and the student that they made up that didn't exist was named Bernie Detwiller. Mm-hmm. And the they had had the guy reading the announcements over the PA say things like, oh, and congratulations to Bernie Detwiller for leading the school bowling team to victory last night over such and such. Mm-hmm. And not only did Bernie Detwiller not exist, the school had no bowling team. <laughs> And they, and they had this thing rolling for like a long time, and then eventually, um, somebody in the office who was more on the accounting side of things somehow figured out that Bernie Detwiller didn't exist, 
and went and approached, I don't know, the principal or somebody. He's like, you know, we've got the student Bernie Detwiller here, and it looks like he's never paid his tuition. Yeah. You know, and and obviously then the joke was up. They couldn't do it anymore, you know, but but like nobody really got in trouble. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe the principal, I, I can't remember, but maybe the principal told my stepdad and the other teachers in on the joke, like, hey, guys, come on. That was, that was dumb. Don't do that again. Whatever. But like no one got fired. No one, you know, got in, got in big trouble. It was just more like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I would enjoy, I, I think I would enjoy teaching more in that kind of a uh, McHale's Navy yeah, yeah, yeah. sort or, of a scenario. Yeah. I, I, yeah. My, my observation just from my own schooling was is that teachers in the beginning wanted to have fun and wanted to be energetic and engaged. Um, you know, my dad talks to me about like his positive experiences in school, despite not being a good student. And, you know, he had this like really young teacher who my dad had no father. His mother was a drunk. So he let the school was kind of like a respite for him growing up. And, you know, he had this just this young, I think it was a math teacher who would just stay after with him and a couple other kids and they would just do math, you know. Mm -hmm. And now uh, or like so as somebody gets older that just, I mean, maybe that's just a function of getting older. Maybe that happens to all of us, but I, I did see a lot of people worn down in the, in the later stages of the, the, the career versus people who seem pretty energetic in their first like five years. Yeah. But then, I mean, that was my experience as a student. And then when I was going back in as a teacher, I already mentioned that people who still look like kids sitting in this classroom with me were like, I've, I've had it. Yeah. I've had it, with, but it wasn't about I've had it with the kids because I, I also think that a lot of them can't – there's something that is necessary about avoiding identifying the system as the problem because hmm. you're stuck. The, the system you know, I think, deep down, whether we're talking about education or scale it up or extend it into anything we've talked about right. in the last 45 minutes – deep down you know that that system's not going to change yeah. and you find things within the system it's, it's almost like the idea of the limited hangout itself right it's mm. like ah we had this guy steve and he was an asshole and he's gone now you know yes. like no more of steve's shenanigans everybody but it, it's it's the system that failed it's the system that's broken um especially in the case with education but what i remember seeing when whether i was student teaching or i was sitting in these group therapy sessions of current teachers in states like new york and massachusetts was um they were blaming no child left behind mm -hmm. right they they had something specific as but that was new Right. It's like there's some new imposition into what we're doing. And right. they were right. It was a good identification that it certainly was, but it wasn't extended to the to the system that was around it. And what most teachers did, most of the people that I talked to and most of the observations that I had as a student, they blame the students and they uh -huh. blame the parents. Right. And if we could fix those things, this would be great. Right. Yeah. And they're probably not entirely wrong about that. No, I think students yeah, right. and parents are probably pretty dysfunctional, but <laughs> well, yeah, and worn down by the system in many ways as well, which right. I learned towards the end of my career, you know, being a, a private service provider. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I don't I don't disagree with that. Even just in my own in my own whatever it is now, 12, 13 years teaching college, I've seen a miniature version of that process of kind of things gradually becoming more rigid and more you know, bureaucratic and whatever. And it's not to say that it was like wide open wild west when I started in 2006 or whatever, mm -hmm. but, but that I've noticed. And, and part of it is, is a generational thing over time. Um, m most of the, most of the administrators who were running things when I got hired, uh, have retired since then. And, you know, it's a younger, younger crowd who are more, more used to everything being kind of formal and, you know, by the book and, 
you know, um, forms and procedures and whatever. And the older generation was a little bit more loose. I guess they had come in, you know, in the sixties and seventies when things were still more kind of informal and ad hoc and all that kind of stuff where you could just kind of like, you know, as long as you, as you knew who to, who to call or whatever, you can just kind of get things done behind the scenes. So they're, they're kind of continuing a culture that existed before a lot of the new controls and regulations, even as right. the new controls and regulations come in, it's still a little bit softer at that time. Yeah. yeah I think we did. So we did our two part series, um, months ago on, um, it was four people considering community college. Right. So I figured there'd be a lot of, you know, unschoolers who would see that as a, as a step maybe into continuing, uh, higher education somewhere else. And I think we, we broke it into two parts and one part dealt more with the cultural social aspects. Um, and, and that was like, you know, changing times, changing generation, right. those kinds of considerations, which are not something we're saying this is the cause, but we're saying this is a factor. Right. And then the other part dealt more with the, the, the political side of it, yeah. right? As things become more centralized and federalized, the management or the control of them gets away from the people operating at the actual service level. And it's certainly yeah. been the case in public schooling in the United States. While all the money is still forced in locally, the control has been sucked further and further away from those communities over the over my lifetime, pretty much. That's yeah. The, yeah. But even even if there were designs on that that extended, you know, 100 years back in the past uh, before the Federal Department of Education, that has always been, as it is with so many things political, the lifting of control further and further away. Like you set up the structure and you say, this is democratic or this is how it works or you can go to this meeting and you can, your voice can be heard and then eventually it's just like the the actual levers of participation are just drawn further and further away from yeah, the average yeah. person. Yeah, and that's that's very much something that can be traced back to the uh to to kind of progressivism 1.0, mm -hmm. the kind of, you know, late 19th early 20th century first draft of progressivism. They very much they had they had these these two two ideas that seemed to be contradictory logically but that actually in a way work from the perspective of the elites who who want that system in place and that is we need more democracy we need to make things more democratic we need things like you know the the amendment to to have people vote directly for their senators we need to have primaries instead of having the party bigwigs choosing the candidates in the smoke-filled back rooms um so yeah we're going to have these more quote-unquote democratic reforms and yet at the same time also pushing for for making most of the machinery of government, which is mostly, you know, bureaucrats mm -hmm. who are actually running the machinery of all the different departments and things like this, to make them more and more insulated from things like elections. And, and, oh, and, yeah. the, and the good argument is like, oh, well, that's a way to, to, to roll back corruption. And that's the basis on which a lot of people supported those, those things. But at the same time, it's, it's like you're saying, you end up with a thing where like, where there's a lot more like voting going on and a lot more people able to vote. But, in practical terms, who they vote for and all that stuff is, it becomes less and less relevant to what actually happens. Because you, you put what is on the surface a democratic government more on autopilot, right? So yes. it's, almost, it's almost a form of fuller spectrum dominance where if part of the bureaucracy is influencing the, the attitudes and values and thoughts and beliefs of the people who are going to make up the citizenry, well, the stakes involved in voting certainly diminish a little bit, right? right? And that's why it's so important to keep the voters, you know, keep barraging them with all the propaganda about how important this election is, how important it is you vote. Mm -hmm. Well, so that, that also question that. has a, a very psychic uh, benefit for the people 
who are voting is that they've had they, their frustrations and feel like they've accomplished something. They feel like they're in control. And I think also, you know, they, we hear these cliches about like, well, you know, you get the government you deserve. Right. Well, where the truth is, after the, the progressive vision played out, you get whatever government, the people who are the furthest away from you, right? And the most shielded from many aspects of living in the real world, you get the government those people wanted. Right. And you got to pretend that you were participating in it. But instead of – and, you know, everybody likes the idea of, you know, pitchforks at City Hall and all that. But the only outlet they've been given for pitchforks at City Hall is that the ballot box. Right. Right. So so all the power is directed into these these meaningless things where, yeah, your representatives could change a little bit, even though they hardly do. They hardly do. Like the yeah. the incumbency rate, you know, Congress could have an approval rating. I think the lowest I've seen in, in like my political observations over the last 20 years was like 8 percent. Yeah. Approval, you know, and the, and the incumbency rates over 90. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So something does not add up. Right. So even that exercise is a failure. But let, let's say that that was just incredibly dynamic. And every two years in the House, you had incredible turnovers. And every six years in the Senate, you just had these astounding changes you know, taking place. I said six years in the Senate, right? I think so. I think I did. <laughs> but all the machinery of government, you know, these unelected bureaucrats who are operating according to procedures that the public never has access to. Right. You know, it's also I mean, you can you could scale this to uh, the, the ways the design of government is is influenced. We talked about, I'm sure, before the tax free foundations, mm -hmm. the Reese Commission investigated in the 1950s. Right. Where there was all of this influence going into education. Right. From from all of these. Everyone understood that that education was, the, you know, the goose that lays the golden egg as far as getting all the stuff that we're talking about accomplished. Mm -hmm. Agencies that were absolutely accountable to no one that most people didn't even know existed or know what they did were influencing the way people's minds and thoughts and beliefs and attitudes would work yep. in the public. Right. Yep. So you have that design level and, and, you know, John Taylor Gatto outlines this over the course of a hundred years going into like, how do we, how do we take the ideas of BF Skinner and inject that into the curriculum of education? That was kind of like the latest, um, well, I don't want to say it's the latest. It was a later development in um, social engineering in the mm. 1960s where a lot of very much in secret universities working in, in conjunction with think tanks and corporations and the government itself were designing education for the future, you know, and, and yeah. understanding how they could inject behaviorist principles into the public schools. Not that yeah. they weren't there before, just kind of naturally. So, yeah, yeah. it's and it's top down. And when they have the the ability to, you know, manipulate the media as they wish, then it almost on some level becomes victim blaming to blame the, the average voters because, I mean, yeah, it would be nice if, if every average person had the knowledge and sophistication to easily see through effective propaganda, but they don't. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, tying it back into Anslinger, I mean – it wasn't like there was a groundswell of voters before 1937 going, dear God, ban the pot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There ended up just being, you know, and I don't, I don't want to blame it all on Anslinger, but he's clearly like the central figure in this. There, there's a very, very kind of coordinated effort from 1935 or so until 1937 to manufacture a crisis mm -hmm. to, you know, something that – there were there were a couple states in the United States where you know law enforcement was worried about the pot because the you know the damn Mexicans or whoever was smoking the pot. But 
for the most part, the vast majority of the, of the country neither knew nor cared much about one, one way or the other about marijuana. And then Anslinger, either because he was convinced that it really was a threat or simply because he wanted to have like a big issue, you know, to kind of stand on as, as the narcotics chief there, um, or both probably decided like, all right, this is going to be a big thing. And it's an, it's a very interesting kind of primitive early example that you can see of, of a part of the government doing this where they just decide one day, like, oh, this is, this is a big issue. This mm-hmm. is a big crisis. We need to do something. And, and it's not coming from the bottom up. It's not coming from the people saying, oh my God, save us from the weed. But, but they were effective enough at getting that message out there with, you know, a very compliant media mm-hmm. and then very effective at either marginalizing or silencing all of the, uh, dissenting voices who were saying things like, Marijuana is really not all that dangerous and saying and saying things like even if there are problems with drug addiction and abuse, the more effective and humane and cost effective way to deal with that is through treatment, not through prosecution. Because mm-hmm. there were people even, you know, back in the mid 20th century who who understood these things and, and figuring out how to get those people, you know, most of the time just simply ignored, just simply thrown in the memory hole by the mainstream media. But then, you know, when they do make a little noise that makes it into the mainstream, then you attack them. Uh, and then you have someone like Anslinger who's like, oh, I'm so, I'm so respectable. I have this high position. I'm, I'm the commissioner of the Bureau of Narcotics and have been for many years. And why everyone respects me, including the pharmaceutical industry, you know? Yeah. Um, and all this authority that goes along with that. I've been appointed by presidents from both parties, you know? Mm-hmm. I, who knows more about what drugs should be banned than the chief of the Narcotics Bureau? Uh, and and most people are habituated to roll over to symbols of authority and titles and all that. When people so. don't have a method of thinking critically, right? So in the yep. last interview I did, where we're talking entirely about following purveyors of conspiracy, right? All you have is that that acceptance of the appeal to authority, right? right. Whether whether it's actually authority in power, right, in recognized forms of power. Or it's uh, like a knowledge authority, like this is my radio show, this is my website, Infowars.com or whatever, right? right? Um, if you don't have like uh, this this application that you do when you encounter new information and you say, okay, well, what is that actually? What is what are these things definitionally, objectively? What are the what do these terms mean? You accept somebody else's definition, but also somebody's attitudes around a certain idea and then your beliefs are all but formed at that point right so if yeah. you if you just um you know eat you don't even chew you just swallow somebody else's grammar on you know whatever these issues are there you're ultimately going to wind up accepting and and parroting their rhetoric in mm-hmm. the end but in this case you're right that's not even in perception management that's just in acceptance of public policy like what argument do people have especially when when there's guns to be pointed right mm-hmm. you don't have an argument against like well, i'm in charge of this agency and i have been for this long and this is what i say congress bows to that any any sort of oversight bows to that the public even if they can you know protest quietly in their own homes ultimately they have to bow to that you know yeah yeah and it's a danger shows you one of one of the dangers of that system of quote-unquote representation the members of congress and this this becomes progressively more of a problem the more areas of life the federal government pokes its nose into over the course of american history but the members of congress are constantly legislating on things about which they know nothing 
Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, I mean, you have, it it was very obvious in, in the, in the little snippets of like congressional testimony that I encountered in my research of like, you know, the, the congressmen who are asking questions about whether we should ban marijuana or not, that those congressmen in the 1930s, they didn't have the slightest clue at all about anything to do with marijuana. And so how are they equipped to be able to make the, the discernment between good, trustworthy, expert testimony and evidence versus bad? I will tell you this, though. Marijuana can be smoked through a series of tubes. Yes. If that's helpful. That's true. Yes. And if it makes it more convenient. To just smoke it through the Wi-Fi. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's that's a really good point. It's interesting that you know you think about like these totally different issues that are like the scary thing is it's so much simpler making drug policy over a plant, right? Like something that if you throw seeds over your shoulder, it grows behind you, right? You know, versus like Google, yeah, right. And if you think about throughout the twentieth, what very much was the progressive century. This just normalization of like, these are my representatives. I'm pacified by my vote. Mm-hmm. And at least until, you know, I can have my chance to get angry or, or signal or pretend angriness at the, in the next election cycle. Once that's not happening, I go back to pretending this person represents me. Right. Well, this person knows absolute shit about nothing. Yeah. And they're in there, uh, deliberating over these things throughout the 20th century normalizing this idea that that is their function, that they are, they're competent to do this. Even though like, yep. I think on another level, everybody, everybody kind of understands this. And this is a lot of the triggering, like Larkin Rose used to be really good at like getting underneath people's beliefs right. about this. Like, right. how does somebody get the right to do this? How do you transfer power to these people? You know, the, right. like those kinds of questions. And, and that would in, often encourage meltdowns when, when, or, or frustration. I think when I, when I tried to use Larkin Rose's techniques to, to undermine the idea of, Representative democracy is pacification for mm-hmm. so much of what happens. But through people's acceptance of that on many simpler issues than what we're dealing with today, right. now we're talking about technology. Like we did that roundtable Friday night mm-hmm. on uh, Jim and Baconic's work and mm-hmm. uh, warnings about technology. That's what these people are dealing with today. Something that is so – like you could have figured out marijuana, you know, in the 19 mm-hmm. – where a lot of this stuff was debated in the – 50s, 60s, 70s, like you got to talk to experts. Like these people who are 70 years old, they're never going to understand Google, Facebook, any of these things. It's yeah, yeah. And when you're when you're ignorant about the, something, wait, the impact is so much bigger too. Oh, yeah. The impact on our lives is so much bigger now than yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is just you know, I guess kind of to some degree a critical thinking sort of lesson that could apply to anybody. Uh, if you're not firsthand knowledgeable about a topic, you are not equipped to even decide which of the various experts are the best to listen to. Oh, you, that's you, it. Have, you have no rational way of differentiating. Instead, whether you realize it or not, you're likely to be like, well, this guy seems to know what he's talking about mm-hmm. because of his charisma or whatever, or, or, oh, he's got some, you know, official titles or credentials and that's, that's it. Um, and, and you see this with presidents as well, that presidents very often you know, it's it's not like they're making rational calls about which economic policy to follow. It's more just like, all right, this this advisor guy that I like who hangs out with me a lot, he tells me to do this, so that makes sense. You see, a Trump is particularly prone to this because he's like, you know, so ignorant of virtually everything, and he's like proud of it mm-hmm. that it's basically like wh- whichever advisor spoke to him last seems to be like just whichever policy he's going to follow. Yeah, you know, and this is this is why he's so like flip floppy so often, and and you know. Um, you can see it particularly with Trump with foreign policy, where he actually has 
maybe some decent instincts about like staying out of wars and things. Mm -hmm. But then all it takes is like Pompeo or Kushner or somebody to like have have a 10 minute conversation with him. And next thing you know, he's like, all right, we're bombing so and so. Mm. Invoking Trump also brings up the idea of fake news, which is which is um, related to what you're talking about, because the fake news label used by both sides reduces, I think, in the minds of most people who are coming at it from this point of ignorance and wanting, needing to make sense and meaning out of things. Every controversial issue that that could be better understood is reduced to a draw. Right. Mm -hmm. These people say versus these people say, I'm not an expert. It's also, you know, it's also one of the great um, entryways into the world of conspiracy, right? You take a layperson and you start talking about ballistics in the case of JFK or astro or, uh, you know, astrophysics in the case of uh, the Apollo mission or structural engineering in the case of 9-11. And most people have zero knowledge on this. So what? What draws them forward or draws them, pulls them into that is their motivation to often confirm some kind of bias they already have. Right. Like usually the people who – I don't know. Maybe I fit into this category to a certain extent. Not perfectly. Um, Somebody who believes in a conspiracy or like – all right. So I don't fit into this category. I'll change the category. Somebody who believes in a conspiracy 100 percent, you know, uh, or conspiracy theory 100 percent, I should say. They believe in almost all of them. Right. Yeah, that's a common thing. Right. Yeah. Because they're not they're not operating on like an actual quest for truth. They're they're operating on some kind of bias or worldview that they're just going out and seeking somebody to say, Yes, you're you're right about everything. Be very suspicious, be very paranoid. They're out to get you. That right. kind of thing. When and and because of that, and I've seen this in real life, you're missing a lot of nuance about these about lots of these things. Yes. So yeah, come on. Yeah, well th- this is this is this is why I I refer to myself on the question of conspiracy um, as a moderate conspiracy person, Mm -hmm. meaning I try to be just as cautious and skeptical of the alternative theories as the official theory, because sometimes the official story might actually be right. And sometimes – with a lot of the alternative theories about some event or whatever, there might be like 500 different competing alternative versions mm-hmm. and logically they can't all be right if they contradict each other. And so then it's like, all right, either one of those 500 alternatives is correct or none of them are in the official version is actually right or something entirely different. That's neither the official version nor the 500 alternative explanations that are out there currently. And it's something entirely different from all of that. And so I don't know. I I feel like the the intellectually honest person who is trying to be a genuinely independent critical thinker has to become comfortable with a high degree of agnosticism Mm -hmm. about a lot of things. And most so. people are not comfortable with that. Most people want certainty, whether that certainty comes from, well, the president said it or the, the, the nice looking guy on the TV news said it, therefore it's the truth, or whether it's the person saying, oh, this, you know, one conspiracy, you know, radio host or whoever that I, that I like said it, so it must be the truth. Like in, in, in either case, it's just you're, you're seeking certainty and you're seeking cer- certainty either you're ideologically and psychologically inclined to believe the establishment or you're the opposite. And so I don't know. I always am on the lookout for like things that may not be true that fit what I want to believe. Cause like I want, I, I, I want stories of like the government doing nefarious dark things and 
whatever. I want Hollywood. I want Stanley Kubrick to be involved, for heaven's sake. You know? Yeah. I, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's very attractive. And so so you have to be – you have to be just as, as careful about your own biases when they're anti – you know – Anti-state and anti-establishment is when they're pro because it can still lead you astray. It's still confirmation bias going on. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, if I came across something in a, in, a, in a not very reliable, poorly sourced document that said Harry Anslinger was a, you know, led a coven of Satanists that, you know, whatever, were, were pedophiling children and blah, 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 blah. It's like there's a part of me that's like, oh, man. Yes. I've got some good dirt on this guy. Let's go to town. But but if I if I actually came across something like that in my research, if I couldn't verify it in a pretty substantial way, mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't stand there and say I know this this is the truth. I could at, at most I could say, look, there's this one shaky looking source that says this. I have no idea. I'm unable to verify this from something more reputable. I don't really know. Yeah. So. I think it also reveals a darkness in that whole world that that is something to definitely approach cautiously and skeptically. So I'll give you an example of like Pizzagate, right? Yep. And this really turned me off to this this guy who I've actually come around on a little bit, Mike Cernovich. Like I at least respect the the hardships that he deals with in his life as a sort of out of the mainstream investigative journalist. Mm-hmm. But there was this culture around this Pizzagate thing where it's like you have so much hatred for what? Democrats, Hillary Clinton, John Podesta, they, you don't know there's an international child sex trafficking ring that 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 has its tentacles spread so far into the world that sometimes they pop up in pizza parlors, right? right. You don't know that. But your behavior, your you, even even like your we'll call it research behavior, your quest for evidence of this is all suggesting that this is something you want to believe, yes. right? So you're in a place mentally where you want to believe that children all over the world are being systematically victimized because it's useful mm-hmm. as a story to use against your enemies. Getting people to operate on that metacognitive level, it, I, I wouldn't try it because I, I think that, that, that people who are – and maybe that maybe there are people who are potentially more rational, potentially more self-evaluative who could catch themselves and go, holy shit, I'm really like fantasizing about some pretty dark stuff here that I really don't know the truth. But what does it mean? What, what does it mean about my psyche right. or, or the, the way that the, the media or the political culture is influencing me? If I'm actually fantasizing about horrible things being true in the world – you know, I remember one time I was arguing with somebody who was like a family member, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm talking about voluntarism, anarchy, like just libertarian services being provided privately, dispute resolution, those kinds mm-hmm. of ideas. And the way he forms the sentence is, I can't wait till a rapist breaks into your house. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> we're family. Yeah. Do you pray for this? Do you have your fingers yeah. crossed this is going to happen? Are you out there Do you have a voodoo doll? people? Uh... Right, right, right. So it just shows like how people's thoughts and priorities can get so twisted in in this antagonistic world uh, of politics. Yes. There's that problem. The other thing that you're talking about in your own skepticism about, yeah, like alternative theories of how things happened are very attractive. They're very sexy. Uh, They often, you know, considering how history is taught in public school, how history is taught in college, even though alternative history theories are used in college often to build trusting relationships to promote a certain political uh, ideology, mm-hmm. right? So, like, I, I felt like the treatment of history when I was in college is like, you kids have been fucking lied to since you were six. Right. Now you're about to learn how shit really is. Oh, also socialism is good. Yeah. You, they told yeah. you it wasn't. Uh, yeah. but, and, and it's all the yeah. patriarchy that's been 
screwing you over and that that's all there is to it and that yeah and that's a kind of added on feature that i really didn't pick up on when i i think my guy was more of like a, a bernie sanders who more who, of a class than a yeah gender. so even if identity politics was a part of the conversation that and it was you know this was the mid 90s yeah. uh the pc was a big thing before the war on terror there wasn't room for it was it's kind of a luxury issue in a, a safe and privileged world sure <laughs> you know but this all was very very present in the 90s as well mm. but you know the other thing just with Understanding that, yeah, we we get a very simplified, disnified version of of history, and uh, that results in often a very simplified, like black and white, good and evil understanding of politics as as adults. But for those of us who do understand that the truth is probably different, it's certainly more complicated. When we wander into this world of conspiracy, you know that that exercise, that that sort of um, thought experiment or or challenge of like, okay, well. I'm skeptical about, let's just pick 9-11 as an example. I'm sorry. I feel like the people listening to my podcast just heard me say 9-11 for like the 25th time in the five or six shows that, that I've recorded. Mm. I don't know why it's in the front of my mind, but like uh, I was just at Red Pill. I saw somebody present on 9-11. Oh, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about the whole 9-11 truth movement, and maybe this is where, where it uh, actually comes out. Ask yourself if you are skeptical of the official story of that event. Mm. Could it be? 94% true. Right. Could all, right. the devil lie in the details of that 6%, mm-hmm. right? Could those 19 guys have been on the planes? Could the planes have crashed into those buildings? Could the could those exercises I mean like now I'm just kind of spitballing here but could those exercises those those drills that were running actually interfered with FAA efforts to figure out what planes were in the sky and then it's just a, a you know Seemingly small things in that giant event. It's just these seemingly small things in that arbitrarily selected 6% that you're missing. Mm-hmm. Now, most people, or I think a lot of people, go the, it's 100% not true. Right. To where we get stories like, there were no planes. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. It was it was all just, and, and then, like, it was laser weapons from the sky. There's a woman named Judy Wood who said it was some kind of sophisticated space weapon that was being used. Right. And... Then the planes were added uh, with CGI later. Well, no, I saw the plane. Oh, well, then they also had holograms, right? So, yeah. so it's like you have to go the whole way, the whole way of. I don't want to call it paranoia. I think paranoia is just a dismissive word because I think this is this is a natural emotional kind of uh, progression to happen, mm-hmm. right? So I don't want to undermine that or invalidate that this this happens to people or call them paranoid. I think calling people crazy is, you know. A terribly thing to a terrible thing to do unnecessarily, just as a, a term mm-hmm. of dismissal. But yeah, there's this propensity towards full rejection of everything, right? And to yes. the point where it extends into anything that is being done by somebody who is in government or the energy sector or the intelligence sector or the health sector is a hun- education mm-hmm. is a hundred percent malicious. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because you can. For example, point to specific – just to take one specific example because, yes, you can identify specific cases where pharmaceutical companies or medical boards or whoever do something nefarious. Of course, yeah. That therefore means like literally all of modern modern medicine is poison, mm-hmm. uh, which – yeah, and, and that's that's a tendency – and I've, I've been toying with maybe doing an episode because every now and then I do an episode where I just sort of take apart like an idea or a concept a bit. And and I've been toying in my head for a while with doing an episode on just this whole idea of of the Manichaean temptation, the the you know pure this or that 
um, dualism, mm. the, the temptation that we have to be like the official story is 100% true or it is 100% bullshit and this one you know crazy alternative is 100% true. Um, and, and this plays into the, the same us versus them tendency you see in tribalism and politics. It, it, it's just all this, this, this Manichaean tendency, I think, in the human psyche to always want to put things in dualistic terms, mm. that there's us versus them. There's, you know, the pure good versus pure evil. And of course, politicians are happy to, to exploit those when they're doing things like trying to drum you up for war, mm -hmm. but that everybody's prone to it. Even even the countercultural types, even the, you know, alternative types. It kind of makes me think of the episode of South Park a long, long time ago where they were portraying the goth kids Yeah. in South Park, the little group of goth kids. And like a, a new kid gets sort of inducted into the goths and they're like, oh, yeah, man, you got to be a nonconformist. First thing to be a nonconformist is you got to dress like we do. <laughs> right. The exactly. Same music we yep, do. Yep. You got to like all the stuff we like. That's how you get to be a nonconformist. You mm -hmm. know? No, I mean, believe me, I have. I had a friend who took a story into one of these truth movements, right? That didn't. That was off script from the story they were running with at uh -huh. the time, and he learned that real fast. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to go to the Bigfoot convention and and your presentation is a hey, Bigfoot's bullshit. Let me tell you about the Loch Ness monster. Right. <laughs> exactly. That is not what they want to hear. Right. Wow, man. We could definitely keep going. I feel like I wanted to remember the need for direct action in some of these cases, like so much of this, whether it's the powerlessness or the continued search for meaning and in, in a world where meaning is just getting harder and harder to, you know, ascertain in, in some of these cases, remembering direct action. You know, we I actually wound up delaying our interview a little bit because I'm talking to this guy who um, was one of the people who were shot in the Narcopoco, which mm. is a total like drug war tie-in, right? Yeah. So, it, it, I mean, it's interesting that, prep in the morning for like, okay, CJ and I are going to talk about this historical figure in the drug war from, you know, starting in the middle of the 20th century and mm -hmm. maybe just looking at like some of the impact. But it seems in, in a way, like the way I was kind of picturing it in my head, it was like academic and kind of abstract. And right. yeah, it's good to know because it definitely affected policy and it definitely affected culture in the United States. You know, then I'm, I just happened to be sitting and having coffee with somebody that I only met really or interacted with for the first time yesterday who was you know, shot by most likely Mexican drug cartels empowered yeah. by the American drug war yeah. in an extremely dangerous hotbed for the drug trade as a result of that drug war. Mm -hmm. And also wound up where he was in that dangerous situation because people were basically refugees from America, people who were using marijuana you know, uh, I think mostly in a or at least partially, let's be fair, partially in a healing capacity, mm. you know, and I think believe that 100 percent fled the country to this place. If not for the American drug war, that scene, which must have been terrible, which this dude survived and is healing from physically and emotionally, that never would have happened, you know. Mm. So it's just like we move into this more removed conversation about a figure who was dead before we were born. Mm -hmm. Right. And I walk over into this conversation from an actual victim of right. that, of that drug war that, that took place in many ways. Now there's obviously lots of surrounding circumstances and variables, but I think it's a fair connection. And yep. he made that connection for me. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, he, I mean, he described himself, he didn't use the word victim, but you know, this, this um, tragedy was a consequence 
of the American drug war. Yes. So. Yeah. And it shows you that uh, Anslinger's legacy, just to, to use that as an example, Anslinger's legacy is still front and center. Yeah. And, and maybe history does matter. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Things have consequences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, history definitely, uh, I, I think all of these things matter. And I think like building that understanding is really important. But just to, as a contrast to that, that conspiracy conversation we were having for a while there, remembering to take some kind of meaningful action in your own life, hmm. even if it is just, you know, I've, I've seen like you turn more recently into like, these are the things that I'm doing that help myself. Yes. You know, um, you said it on, it was, I think it was in an interaction yesterday with Nick that I mm -hmm. was watching. Right. But that's something that you're kind of building into your online persona and your brand as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually planning on rolling out a second, a second podcast. Not that I'm, not that I'm retiring the dangerous history podcast by any means, but yeah, it's actually, I'm going to try and get it live by the end of the summer if I can. And it's going to be more focused on that because I've brought those sorts of things up on my show in various ways, off and on since the beginning. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel like that kind of stuff deserves its own, its own RSS feed and all that goes with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, because the Dangerous History, history podcast, I want to, I want to keep it more tied in with history, you know. And in a way, it's sort of like how Dan Carlin. Um, I don't think he's done his current events podcast much lately, but no. um, you know how how he did a he did a current events podcast and his history show. That way, the history show could just be the history show. Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, I mean, I'm more interested in that, and it's sort of you know parallel to the the trajectory that your show has has gone on over the long term. Of like, you start off with like, here's here's a, all all the exquisite details of the problems, mm -hmm. and then move on to the solution. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to still be doing both simultaneously, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely have, have been more and more over time coming around to that, that point of view that it's more effective, that the most important thing is like, I don't worry anymore about like fixing these big corrupt institutions. I don't waste a whole lot of mental energy. I, I like to research them and teach people about them because number one, I have fun doing it. I think mm -hmm. it's interesting. And like, I want to sit there and read a, read a deep dark book about Harry Anslinger or whatever. Even if I wasn't doing a presentation, that's something I'd be interested it's in. It's enrichment. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 And, and that, you know, people will learn and hopefully they'll think more critically just in general about, about current events and history and all that. But, but that I'm, I'm not under any delusion that like my podcast is contributing to saving the world and, you know, creating a more humane and free tomorrow. Not really, not, not in any real measurable sort of way other than maybe freeing individuals in mm. terms of their thinking. And, and that's a good thing. And I'm, and I'm happy to do that. And when I hear about people that, you know, I've kind of inspired them or whatever to think more critically about things. It's great. But I'm not sitting around going like, oh, if we could just abolish the CIA or abolish this or abolish that. And and so, yeah, now I'm more on your, your circle of your direct circle of control, mm -hmm. you know, bottom up right. sort of a thing, individual up, not not expecting these institutions to fix things. And so, yeah, I mean, I've long since thrown in the towel on being real worked up about like politics and all that crap. I think it's much more important to focus on yourself and, you know, your immediate surroundings and, and, and family and all that stuff and, yeah, improving yourself. Yeah, and in the meantime, you know, it is still a service for other people with what you do with Dangerous History, right? Because you know, I'm always reminded, and it's one of the things that motivated me in the beginning and motivates me continuously, you know, Harry Brown said at some point long ago, if you have something to say, 
you know, make sure you say it. Make sure you yes. say it to as many people as you can. Yes. Because you don't know how somebody else might be able to leverage some revelation or some piece of information in what in what you said or that you provided sure. in a way that you never thought of doing it. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's something that, that always motivates me. And it, it's one of the things about events like this that excite me when somebody says, oh, you know, I used to – I listen to your show or even I'll settle for – I used to listen to your show, right. you know. And I did this or thanks for helping me uh, with this because then I did this. You yep. know, I think I think those stories are great. And, you know, I'm sure you definitely have them too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So why don't we leave it there? I think I'm going to get in my car and drive for the rest of this day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, good luck with that. I'll be – I'll be driving and then flying and then driving again. Ah, yes. Because the airport's like an hour and a half from my house that I that I fly into. So yeah, I wanted to thank you too. I mean, first, it's always good to be able to interact face to face. But I wanted to thank you for participating in our first virtual summit. Yes. And you know, part of that project, as you're talking about, like starting a new podcast uh, that's more focused on one area. I'm sitting here looking at you, going, "What a genius! I wish I knew that." You know, back when I could have done it. I mean, I I should have four or five podcasts in in school sucks. You know, we we have this Jackson Pollock map of topics. Yeah. I've spent a lot of the last year, like just for SEO purposes, trying to map them and understand how this all fits as a coherent picture. But I said, okay, if a person invests, I don't know, 1400 hours to hear everything that we've produced, uh, what are the, what are the biggest takeaways they would, what, what are the, the skills or the value that they would have obtained from doing that? So the project of the virtual summit is to identify those things and then condense it into a 12 hour, 15 hour project, mm-hmm. right? And I, I also sought input from the audience on how to do that. And, you know, one of the things that the audience wanted most was better research skills. So you were one yes. of the first people I thought of for that. Uh, we had an awesome conversation about your method. I'm excited that, that uh, you know, the people who attend that are going to be able to hear that. So thank you for your participation in that as well. Oh, you're very welcome. And, and just, you know, folks can probably by the time the university is live, I would guess my podcast episode of my presentation probably will have already been published. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you want an example of, of what the results are of, of my approach to research, you can listen to my Harry Anslinger presentation. Um, it'll be an episode of my podcast. And... And, and basically, the, the stuff that I talked to Brett about in University module that I did is exactly what I did for Anslinger, but I had to do it in a hurry. Yeah. I was literally like working on it on the plane ride. I was working on it after I got here. I was working on it. My talk was at 12 noon. I was, I was working on, you know, still jotting things on note cards as of 1130. And then I said, that's it. Done. Can't do no more. Mm-hmm. Stopped meditated went and went and delivered it so that's 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 my results even from doing it in sort of a truncated way in a bit more of a hurry than i normally would um and by the way just for any anybody um looking ahead towards that second podcast getting started it is going to be the gorilla scholar warrior podcast yes and and that's that's also what i termed my research methods that i talked about with brett um how to how to kind of do research like a gorilla scholar warrior how to be resourceful even when you have limited resources, including time and money. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for sitting down with me today. This was great. Yeah. Totally different to than what I expected. I knew like we'd, we were going to talk about Harry Anslinger for 15 minutes yeah. and the rest was, was up in the air, but I liked how it came together. Yeah. No, we did. We did almost like a mini Rogan sort of a thing. I liked it. I felt that way during down. it. Yep. I was like that, but better. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like really quick we ought to, we ought to talk about um, animal videos on YouTube. Mm-hmm. We ought to talk. Yeah. What are the, I can just know. edit that yeah. stuff in later. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah, just yeah, edit yeah, that yeah, stuff yeah. in later. Let's talk about archery real quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jiu-jitsu. Well, 
Well, yeah. CJ, uh, thanks for doing it. I'm glad we got to do this joint production. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level. And you'll get all the benefits of the journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.
Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.